Blaze On Demand. This is Ben Weingarten of the Blaze Books, and today I'm joined by Mike Gonzalez, author of the new book, The Race for the Future, How Conservatives Can Break the Liberal Monopoly on Hispanic Americans. Mr. Gonzalez is a senior fellow at the Catherine and Shelby Colm Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation, a former Wall Street Journal columnist and editorial page editor, and served through President George W. Bush's administration as a speechwriter for both the Securities and Exchange Commission and the State Department's European Bureau. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Oh, it's entirely my pleasure to be uh, here with you, Ben. So the first question I always ask is, why should Blaze readers pick up this book? Well, I think it's because I, I, uh, I put in insights that you'll find no, uh, no other place, no book that deals with the, the subject of Hispanics, starting with questioning the term Hispanic itself, how it came about as a bureaucratic contrivance. Unfortunately, millennials have been very woefully uneducated. Uh, all these things began to happen uh, only 40 or 50 years ago. So one thing, and I don't want to be long about it, long-winded about it, but yes, because I, I, I have insights that you'll find nowhere else, and B, because I, I wrote A Race for the Future to sound an alarm for conservatives that they need to wake up and for progressives that uh, what they have been doing, some of them with the best of intentions, have been has been wrong. And, of course, this has obviously been drawn out in the numbers in national elections. I think George W. Bush might have been a, a high-water mark in terms of the percentage of the Hispanic vote. And I know the term Hispanic is something which you sort of take issue with in the book, and we can talk about that in and of itself. But obviously, Mitt Romney performed poorly among Hispanics in the 2012 presidential election. All of this, of course, starts going back in time to sort of the progressive influence on our culture and our political system. So one of the things that I was struck by is that very early on in your book, you talk about the fact that Mexicans in particular were hurt by being labeled as a minority and grandfathered into the war on poverty. Talk a little bit about that. Well, I think I think we all have been, not just Mexican-Americans. Of course, Mexican-Americans uh, fought this uh, really hard. Uh, they, they fought uh, earlier, earlier attempts uh, to classify them as non-white. Uh, the census tried to do that in the, in the 30s, and uh, Mexican-Americans fought against it really hard, and so did the Mexican, Mexican embassy, and they won. Um, in the 70s, in the aftermath of the Civil Rights Movement, when some of the, uh, the, the, the leaders, the self-appointed leaders of uh, the activists, wanted the Mexicans to be added as one of the minorities that were being created. Again, the rank-and-file Mexican-Americans fought against this. Leo Grebler uh, of uh, UCLA, one of the leaders of that group who wrote a, a, a well, actually a groundbreaking book about this study about Mexican-Americans, he, he wrote that he was surprised in the 70s to find that Mexican-Americans did not want to be labeled as minorities, did not want to be labeled as anything but white. Now, you have to understand that these racial classifications by the government white, non-white, uh, whatever, are, are very arbitrary. They have nothing to do with reality. Uh, they, they, they're just labels. That's what it is. In the case of Hispanics and minorities, the term Hispanics and minorities, uh, they, were, they, they were done with the express purpose of administering affirmative action, of collecting data so they could administer affirmative action to these groups. And that is why I think uh, they, the, the effect has been nefarious. And, and a question about that, and, and we can talk a little bit about the Johnson administration and the cynicism that was clearly behind at least some of the policies implemented. How much of the push to create a sort of affirmative action-based system, hitting 
different groups of people as defined by the government against each other. How much of that was done with uh, the willingness of folks among various Hispanic groups in this country versus the sheer political calculation of LBJ and various other Democrats? LBJ and Nixon. Don't forget uh, Nixon. A lot of this sure. stuff happened under, under the Nixon administration. The Republicans have by no means uh, been, uh, been very pure in this either. Look, Mexican-Americans, rank and file, as I said, did not uh, want this, but the activists did. They saw uh, the, the spoil system that was being created in the aftermath of the Civil Rights Movement, and they said, well, we, wanna, we want to, to get in, in there, too. We want the, to be designated as one of the minorities uh, so money can start going to the barrio, and that is Grebler's study use exactly those terms. Uh, to me, what that does is that it starts right away, right away, to associate uh, government interference with success because your success depends on the government, uh, you know, apportioning what your participation in society will be, what your participation in the labor force will be, what your participation in government contracts will be, and what your participation at the universities will be. And, and so throughout society, now we're a country of immigrants, Ben. Uh, the left always says that, but they forget what that implies. For 300 years, starting with the Germans and the Scots-Irish in the 1600s and the 1700s, we had successive waves who made it in this country against much discrimination, against much segregation. They all faced it, and they all made it through their own determination. So after 300 years of a collective history of this, with each country proving itself, and thereby through this competition improving not just its own group, but improving the country, the, the federal government, for the first time in the 1970s, decides that it must act. It must take a, a hand in this, in apportioning participation. And what, it do, what this does is it gets, it gets rid of, of, of the process that I have just described of each group you know, trying its darnest to succeed by its own merit. But it also begins to associate in the minds of those coming in. And don't forget that most of the Hispanics in this country today came in after 1965, or are the descendants of people who came in after 1965, including myself and my family. We came in in 1974. From the beginning, these immigrants associate government as a benevolent actor, as a benevolent benefactor, and that's what affirmative action does, and it has a, a very corrosive effect, I think. And at that demarcation point that you mentioned in 1965, that was when the Hart Seller piece of legislation was passed and implemented. And following the passage of that act, you had a massive increase in illegal immigration into the U.S. You combine that massive increase in immigration with the progressive mindset that then took over all of America's most important institutions, including academia, importantly, as well as the government. And the end result has been that, as you talk about in your book, second and third generation Hispanics in this country have effectively assimilated down. Talk about that. Well, not all, obviously. Uh, some have succeeded. Very, very many have succeeded. But far too many have experienced what social scientists call downward assimilation. Um, and, and, in fact, uh, many social scientists on the left use that term. Uh, now, it wasn't just the Hart-Teller Act, but in 1964, uh, Congress and Johnson also agreed to do away with the Bracero Program, the Bracero program was a, uh, a circular guest worker program that had 
problems but and needed to be reformed to be sure, but it did not need to be ended. Companies needed these workers. The, Mexico had a had a supply uh, an oversupply of labor, so these two things uh, met very nicely, and these people came here to work, went back to their country with money, uh, they now bring their families, and we're circular. Uh, came into work and then left, because uh, Cesar Chavez and the unions did not like this because they, they, these people did not join unions. We did away with this, and then you see the start of illegal immigration, and illegal immigration grows and grows and grows until it reaches the same peak of people as we're here on the Bracero because that you know nature abhors a vacuum. Uh so for except this one exception. Whereas Bracero they were circular, they would come in and leave. With illegal immigration they come in and stay, they hunker down. They pay a lot of money to get get across the Rio Grande. They hunker down and they stay here, they bring their families. So the 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 problem of illegal immigration begins. You have for for decades hundreds of thousands of illegal immigrants coming in every year sometimes close to half a million, uh, and that, 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 that accretion builds up, right? Uh, now, with the Hard Seller Act, you have legal immigrants come in, and because of uh, the Hard Seller Act changes everything, changes the, the emphasis from Northwest, uh, Northwestern Europe to eventually, they, what they wanted to do, they said, was south, south, Southern Europe, but it was Latin Americans that benefited the most, and, and, then, and then Asians. And a lot of legal immigrants came in, an estimated 24, 25 million, maybe 23 million from Latin America alone uh, have come, have immigrated here since 1965. Again, uh, uh, me and my, my family. Uh, now that, that accounts for a great deal of the 53 million or so uh, Hispanic residents of this country. Many of them are also illegal. Hispanics go from about 3.5% of the population in 1960 to close to 17% today, 16 to 17% today. That big demographic bulge coincides, as you said, with uh, the expansion of government under uh, the Great Society. Uh, you know, that is, it is a huge expansion. Don't forget that uh, in 1960, government took for transfer payments only about 30% of, of uh, GDP, exactly what it had been in 1940 that changes to 66% today, and that expansion is all due to the Great Society. Also, the Civil Rights Act, I've already gone through the impact that that, that had and why, and then also then you have the, the countercultural revolution, the sexual revolution, which changes everything, changes the mores. What you have, as part of this is a result of that, part of this is a result of the growth of the welfare state. You have the fact that today, 50, the Hispanics as a whole, as a whole group, have an out-of-wedlock rate of 53%. In 1964, income transfer payments accounted for under 30%, today the 66%. And these figures, of course, wed quite well with those in a book that you reference, at least implicitly, which is Charles Murray's Coming Apart. Obviously, America's policies, both at the federal and the state levels, have contributed to these terrible effects which destroy social capital, financial capital, all forms of, forms of capital, as you speak to at great length in the book. A skeptic would say, having said all that, if you look at many of the countries from which Hispanics have immigrated to the U.S., with probably the biggest exception being Cuba, as you speak to in, at great length, in terms of the aversion to the communist regime there, many of the, the countries that we're talking about suffer from a lack of private property rights, individualism, and some of the other tenets that animated sort of what the founders built here. 
So my question is, do you think that the end result of all of this is that no matter what conservatives end up doing politically and no matter how much the culture changes, Hispanics broadly are still going to vote majority liberal, or do you think that that can be changed? You know, that, that's a very good question. By the way, let me just, uh, as an asterisk, I was actually quoting uh, Murray's colleague at AEI, Nick Eberstadt, uh, on, those, on those figures on government transfer payments. As to the question of the, the provenance, uh, you're absolutely right, and many South American uh, free market economists like Hernando de Soto have talked at great length about the lack of property rights, for example, in Peru, the country where he was born. But that is that, that changes nothing because the the East, the East European Jews that immigrated to this country uh, in the in the 18th century and the early 19th century, the shtetl uh, where they lived, also did not have the, exactly the same values as the founding fathers. The Italians from Sicily who immigrated did not have the founding values of the founding fathers, and I, you, one can go on and on and on and on. What happened is as they, as they came in here they were assimilated, and one of the cauldrons of assimilation was the schoolhouse. The sturdy old American schoolhouse was the place that the founding fathers had designed, because they, they understood this was going to be a country of immigrants, to, to assimilate new immigrants into, uh, into Republican values, Republican with a small r, into civic values, and into the, the working ethic of the founders, and into the love for the Constitution, the love of liberty, and the love of constitutional republicanism explaining it to them, making sure that we turned out Americans, people who did not forget their Italian roots, but who also understood why this is a creedal nation, what the creed of that creedal nation is, and, and embraced it. For some reason, we stopped doing that uh, in the 1960s, because uh, I, you know, I don't know whether it was as a result of the fact that uh, the reason why the Founding Fathers had, had wanted this is because they, they were afraid that a republic would no would would not ex continue to exist would not survive without this constant uh, uh, indoctrination if you will into these values the republics are were, were thought to be very unstable this is why america was the first republic maybe in the 1960s we we began to be overly optimistic about the durability of the experiment and we thought we didn't need to assimilate anymore or maybe on the contrary we became embarrassed about our values and we didn't think we should teach them anymore Either way, we stopped, and what we do today is almost the opposite, which is we use all of our institutions to aggressively instill multiculturalism rather than assimilation into these, into these uh, founding values. Let me repeat once again, because assimilation has become a, a very uh, debased term. Assimilation does not mean that you forget your pride in the history of your country just because you marry your wife, you do not cease to love your, your, your mother, you do not cease to love your grandmother. Other other waves of immigrants were able to to arrive at that balance very well. The Irish marched on St. Patrick's Day and fought in World War II. You know that assimilation, the assimilation has won the debate in 1910, in the 1920s, and what we had as a result was the greatest generation that defeated Nazism in the in the Second World War and defeated communism uh, with Reagan in the 80s. We need to to go back to that, and we need to defeat multiculturalism, which is which is very bad for the soul of the country. And to your point, this sort of controlled experiment that best reflects the dichotomy between embracing American values while still caring about and taking pride in your heritage versus basically embracing a system completely anathema to that. 
is represented in the two states of Texas and California. You write a bit about this issue in the book and how Democrats are trying to flip Texas, which would be devastating for Republicans and conservatives generally. Talk about why Texas and California are so different. Well, Texas and California are almost a controlled experiment. And this brings me again to to why you can take a people uh, from, uh, let's say, uh, some country in South America that do not have the property rights, as you as you quite rightly referenced before, and, and turn them into good Americans, as we did with Sicilians and, and East European Jews and Russians and Poles and so forth. Um, look at South Korea and North Korea. You know, that is a controlled laboratory experiment. Same culture, the same DNA, same everything. One country is a thriving middle-class democracy. The other one is a basket case where people live in fear and are thrown into dungeons. After 50 years of that, a South Korean is on average six inches taller than a North Korean. You saw the same thing, the same controlled experiment with East Germany or West Germany. You see it to some less, to a lesser degree between California and Texas. Uh, and you see it with Hispanics. Uh, Hispanics, it's, it's much better for to be a Hispanic in Texas than it is, it's much better to be anything in Texas and in California. But with Hispanics, you see it very clearly. They have higher levels of living in their own homes, higher levels of religiosity. Which religiosity, by the way, this is not a moral statement, uh, is one of the indicators, one, a very strong indicator of how well a child is going to do, uh, do in school. A, a studies done by Tejas and Ortiz, two California liberal uh, social scientists, showed that uh, how, how often a child goes to, whether he goes to school to, to church on Sunday, is, is a better predictor of how well he or she will do in school uh, than, than, than uh, skin pigmentation. So uh, you have uh, Texas Hispanics have a higher level of being married in a stable family, which also is a very strong predictor. Uh, so across the board, Texas Texan Hispanics fare much better than California Hispanics. And what you see also is that Texas Hispanics are much more patriotic. They feel part of Texas because they, you know, Texas is a, in many, many, many ways a product of uh, of Mexico, of Mexican culture. And we need to recognize, by the way, we need to recognize that. We need to teach it to Mexican-Americans, but we need to teach it especially to non-Mexican-Americans. This is not being PC. This is not Cinco de Mayo. This is knowing our culture. In California, the emphasis has been put on, on, on diversity, on division, on militancy. And what you have is, is the result of what California is. It's, you know, California, with you know, 12% of the population, has one-third of the welfare caseload. Of the country. Right. And I think you would probably agree that in all of the trends that you speak to in society, be it family breakdown, education levels, lack of savings, and we can go on and on down the list, America has sort of imbibed the California ethos over the Texas ethos. So I guess my question is, given those trends, is there optimism going forward that the tide can be turned back against that California mindset? There has to be optimism. I am very optimistic. I wrote a race for the future to sound the alarm that conservatives need, needed to wake up, but they need to wake up and be optimistic as they reach out to Hispanics. Let me tell you, progressives see Hispanics as a block of voters that will help them achieve their goal, as candidate Barack Obama put in 2008, of fundam fundamentally transforming the United States of America, Okay. But they see Hispanics as, as electoral pawns 
and expendable ones at that. Uh, take take the promise of amnesty through uh, through executive action. That will do nothing to improve the schools of the 45 or 36 million legal Hispanics in this country. It will do nothing about family formation, and it will do nothing about removing uh, the, the role that government plays in their lives. Uh, and, you know, this is almost done by design. In order for, for, for the gambit to work, Hispanics must be induced to accept government as a benevolent benefactor. And it starts at the very beginning with affirmative action. So so what we need to do, what conservatives need to do, is, is speak about this and talk to progressives too, by the way, and say, look, many of these programs may have been created with the best of intentions, but what they're doing is they're preventing Hispanics from really advancing. And we need to, to set Hispanics free with a message of of, uh, of, of advancement, a message of upper mobility, of opportunity, and, and not be afraid to to show like a Norman Rockwell America, which I believe still exists in many parts. A, a you know, uh, a, a it, it's a wonderful life America where, where neighbor helps neighbor, where communities pitch in. As I like to say, the only government official in It's a Wonderful Life was a tax examiner, and he wanted to put George Bailey in jail. So we need to, 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 to show the right policies. We need to show what the right habits are. We need to show, we need to, to one of the reasons why Bush did so well amongst Hispanics is was not just the tone, and he got the tone just right, but he also got the policies right. He was a very big supporter of, of marriage, family programs, put a lot of federal money into some faith-based, others not faith-based, but programs that tried to help families that were struggling to stay together, stay together uh, through 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 therapeutic work or through counseling or through just teaching, modeling what good family behavior was. The, you, I don't need to tell you anything more symbolic than as soon as the Obama administration came in, it wanted to do away with those programs and and put all the money in other programs. Uh, that did not emphasize family structure. Family structure is at the, at the it's, it's upstream from all from a lot of uh, problems that we have. In other words, the breakdown of the family is upstream from pathologies, from truancy, incarceration, and so forth. We need to speak that way to Hispanics, and we need to to say to them, you, especially Mexican Americans, which are by far the largest group and say, you created this country, you had a, a role in creating this country, you had a cultural role in the Southwest that it's equal to the cultural role that, say, the Scots-Irish had in Appalachia or the South, and you have a stake in the, in the continuation of, of, uh, of this experiment, and when you give people a stake in something, they will want to conserve it, and that's, after all, how you make conservatives. The name of the book is A Race for the Future, How Conservatives Can Break the Liberal Monopoly on Hispanic Americans. And the author is Mike Gonzalez. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Ben. For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com slash books. And follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theblazebooks and Twitter at theblazebooks. You can follow me on Twitter at bhweingarten.